I want you to cast your mind back to a different time. To It's about a thousand BC. This is the beginning of the Iron Age where everything around the world is being changed and transformed. The way battles are fought is being changed. The way work is accomplished is changing because we've invented a whole new technology of how to discover iron and how to use it as part of our tools. And now we are faced with a new form of battle. And to make it worse, we are part of an army, 32,000 men, and we are facing an army of 135,000 men. We are outnumbered at least four to one. This is the challenge that we are facing. It is insurmountable. There is just fear spreading throughout the camp. This is what we are facing. Do we realize the immensity of the obstacle in front, us, in front of us, the enormity of the threat? There is no human way possible that we can defeat this enemy. We're coming to the moment of truth. We think of the battles that you have seen in movies, whether it's Gladiator or Braveheart or 300, where you've got a small army and they poise for battle. This is where we find ourselves. And then sometimes in a movie like that, you see this climactic moment and then they say, actually, let's take a few steps back to help you understand where we are. That's what I want to do today. Because that's where we find ourselves at the battle. But I want to take a few steps back to help you understand the position that Israel finds itself in. They are currently being oppressed by the Midianites. They've been oppressed by them for seven years. Every time you plant crops, every time you sow, every time you trust God for an economic-like endeavor, the Midianites come in with camels more than what you can count and wipe everything out. They come in like locusts and they just pillage everything. They just saturate like the ground with themselves and they destroy everything in their wake and they steal everything from you. This is where the Israelites find themselves. But it's not the way it was supposed to be. The Israelites were supposed to be the people of God. Chosen by God, he spoke to Abraham and he said, leave the Ur of the Chaldeans and actually go. I'm going to give you a new land. I'm going to give you a land of promise where you can be fruitful, where you can multiply. And not only will you be, you be a blessing, you'll actually be a blessing to the world. You are called to actually go and take the land, plant and grow and develop, and you will show the world what it's like to actually partner with me. But in between that promise, they were actually slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God had stepped in there and he said, I've heard your cry, I am concerned, I have come down, I will set you free. And I'm going to take you into the promised land. And God does that. And he starts the Israelites on this journey. And then they cross the Jordan. And they follow Joshua. And they start defeating the enemy and clearing out the promised land. And they believe they're walking into the fullness of it. But they don't do a complete job. They leave some enemies there. They do a half-hearted job. And because of the enemies they leave there, those enemies lead to compromise with the Israelites. And the Israelites compromise to such an extent that it starts these cycles of sin, which we see in the book of Judges, where when you're in a good space with God and a comfortable space, prosperity-wise, you get distracted and you learn to compromise or you end up compromising. 
and the compromise of sin leads to the oppression, whether it's the, the sin itself or the enemies that come in because of it. These cycles go from sin to oppression to repentance, and then God raises up a judge which sets the people free, which brings good times, which leads again to sin and compromise and repentance. So God has to raise up a new deliverer. And it's these cycles time and time again in the book of Judges. And we're looking at the start of one of these new cycles. This sets the scene for where we see Gideon. And I've said we, we're in, in quite a low point now because the people have sinned again. And the cycle of sin has led to the oppression of the Midianites. And every time they plant crops, they come in and they wipe it out. Because of that, the people are hiding in caves and they can't live out in the valley where they should be. They can't live in the fullness of the land. So instead, they're hiding and they are in fear. And in desperation, they cry out again to God. This is where we get the calling. The calling of Gideon. Because in the midst of this fear, they cry out. And God says, I'm going to raise up a new deliverer. And he comes and he speaks to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I don't know if that's supposed to be sarcastic or prophetic. Because Gideon at the time is hiding in a cave. He's trying to thresh out the wheat, but he's in a cave. To thresh out wheat, you need the wind, you need the open air, because as you do it, the wheat is supposed to fall to the ground and the chaff is supposed to blow, blow away. But Gideon is hiding in a cave out of fear. Maybe you'd think it's actually, maybe it's wisdom, because, I mean, you've seen the Midianites, you've seen their army, you've seen what's happening. It makes sense to hide away. We could say the same maybe of our country where at times maybe we need to hide and we need to be protected. We, we need to be wise. You don't want to overcommit. You don't want to step into situations that are too dangerous. You don't want to do something that's a bit too risky. So we see this interaction between Gideon and the angel of the Lord. And Gideon's doubts are actually beginning to be exposed. His first doubt is a doubt in God's faithfulness. God, have you really been good to us? Have you really been faithful in the past? You said that you would set us free. You said you would bring us into a promised land. You said that you would be kind. You said it would be good. But do you not see the world around us? How can you say you've been good? Look at the state of our country. Look at the state of our bank balance. Look at my life. Look at my finances. Look at my family. Look at my health. God, how can you say you've been faithful? The challenge, though, is that our understanding of the character of God cannot be based on our circumstances. Because if our circumstances determine our character of God, the circumstances come and go and they change. Whereas God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The reason why the Israelites were in the state that they were in was not because of God's lack of faithfulness. It was because of Israel's lack of faithfulness. And the pain that they were feeling was actually a natural consequence of their sin. And that pain... It's exactly what God uses to get their attention. As C.S. Lewis writes, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God allows the pain to get our attention. He's trying to get all of our hearts. 
The amazing thing is he's incredibly gracious to Gideon when he doubts. Because he doesn't even try and defend himself. God just says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? He doesn't defend himself. He just says, well, go fix it. I'll be with you. You see a problem, go and fix it. I think that's a lot of how God actually speaks to us today. When you see a challenge, it's like in the movie Robots, see a need, fill a need. Actually, where you see problems, where you see challenges, is probably where God is prompting you to provide the solution. He's not waiting for other people. He's not waiting for you to say, God, you fix it. He's actually saying, God. And you might be insecure, which gets you to Gideon's next doubt, where he's like, he doubts his own ability and says, how can you use me, God? Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's afraid. His, his inability or his ability, his expertise, he doesn't have the experience he needs. And you might feel the exact same. You see a need, but I can't fulfill it. God says, you're right. You can't. But I will be with you. It's a simple answer. But I'll be with you. So he doubts God in the past and he doubts God in the present. It's like, God, can you really do this? But actually, God says, I can. I don't need to say that the end is secure because of your, your ability. I can prof- prophetically declare the end because I know that I am in this for your benefit. God says, I will be with you. You might be afraid of what's going to happen in your life or in the country, or in the world at the moment. But he says, don't be afraid. I will be with you. The next doubt Gideon has is he doubts whether he's really hearing from God. Because God said, I see the problem. You're the solution. You're going to fix this. And Gideon's like, this sounds great, God. But am I really hearing from you? Or am I just making it up? says, if I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that this is you speaking with me. And Gideon doesn't say, like, okay, God, you have to prove this to me. He says, I I believe I'm hearing from you. I've seen the answer. You have spoken to me. So he responds with a step of obedience. He actually says, if you will wait here, I will bring a sacrifice. And the challenge to each and every one of us is to respond in obedience. I don't know what your obedience looks like, but it's going to involve some form of sacrifice, whether it's financial, whether it's a sacrifice just of your dignity to put your hand up to say, actually, I don't have it all together. I need prayer. Maybe it's a sacrifice of your pride to actually humble yourself to say, I need help. Gideon then gets like, a little bit freaked out that he's speaking to God face to face because he realizes as his sacrifice is burnt up, it's like, man, am I speaking to God face to face? There's allusions to, to Moses here where Moses was raised up as the deliverer, but Gideon was terrified because if somebody speaks to God or sees God face to face, he's supposed to die. And God says, no, Dora, you're not going to die. I'm speaking to you and I'm raising you up for a reason. So what's the plan that God gives him? He doesn't give him a 10-step plan. He says, just start. Start by tearing down the altar to Baal 
in your father's house. Gideon, who's supposed to be this amazing judge, his own father had an altar to Baal. Now the people of the land, Midianites, worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth. We look at them as these primitive backward people. But the reality is, they were worshipping Baal, who was supposedly the god of the storms. He was a powerful god. The god of storms is the one that can provide power, and he can provide the rain. In an agrarian culture, that's what you needed. And then Ashtaroth was the god of fertility. So basically it was power, it was provision, and it was sex. So it's power, money, and sex. That doesn't sound that different to what we are worshipping now and what we are sacrificing for now. And the compromise, we like to look at it as external, but maybe it's actually in our own homes too. We're willing to sacrifice time with our family for the sake of our careers. We're willing to sacrifice time with our kids for the sake of our own prosperity. Whereas God's challenging us of saying, will you actually walk with me? Will you trust me? So God's challenge to Gideon was actually, would you reestablish worship in your own home? Begin there. He tears down the altar of Baal. And it causes a conflict with the guys around him. And his father steps in and actually renames him Jeroboam, the one who challenges Baal. Because the, the, the surrounding men were so upset with him. They were saying, how can you do this? How can you challenge our assumptions? How can you challenge our way of life? And his father said, well, if, if Baal is such a powerful God, he can handle himself, can't he? Surely. Can't he defend himself? You don't need to stand and defend him. So Gideon starts to make a name for himself. And it's in this moment the Spirit actually fills Gideon and he blows his trumpet and he gathers people around him. He, he starts gathering the, the armies around him, 32,000 men. And we see another doubt start creeping in. He's like, God, are you really actually going to do this? He starts doubting the promises of God and he doubts whether God can actually use him to defeat the enemy. So he places out a fleece. This is what Gideon is often famous for, where he places out a fleece and in the morning, he's saying, okay, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And God does it. And he says, okay, maybe it was just a coincidence. Maybe that's just what happens. So he says, do it one more time. Okay, this time the fleece is going to be dry and the ground is going to be wet. And he does it. And this is sometimes used to say, well, I'm going to put out a fleece. I'm going to, I really want this to happen. But if God, if it is your will, then make this other option happen. Make this person phone me at a certain time of day. Make the, somebody like message me at just the right moment. That's not what this is trying to teach us. This Gideon putting out a fleece was a part of the full story of Gideon. The challenge with the Bible is you can't just jump into like one tiny bit of the story and say, okay, that's going to work for me. Gideon was on a journey with God where he had spoken to God, where he had started with, okay, Teach me your character. Teach me how to walk with you daily. Teach me how to trust you for the future. Teach me how to actually transform my identity. In the midst of that, where you're responding in obedience to God, then I believe you can ask God, give me a sign that, you are walk that I'm on the right path. Help me to know that I'm actually walking with you because I want to have confidence that you are in this with me. That is where God is gracious. And he gives him a sign. He 
Gideon has blown his trumpet and gathered the 32,000 men and we start getting to the conflict now. This is where I said in the beginning, we are assembled for battle. 32,000 soldiers against 135,000. And while there's some confidence that's growing in Gideon and confidence that actually God's going to do something, we look around and we, we're a little bit terrified. And Gideon goes to God and he says, what, what must we do? And he says, you've got too many men. He says, God, I think you are counting the wrong army because we are outnumbered four to one. They have 135,000. We have 32,000. But God says, the people you have are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. So he says, anybody that is fearful can go home. And two-thirds of the people leave. Now we're left with 10,000. 13 to 1 odds. Will you still have faith? What if two-thirds of this church leaves? Will you still have faith? God looks at them and he says, there's still too many. So there's a, a little system put in place where he's like, go and let them drink water. And I was, I was going to do an example of asking people how to drink water here because there's a complex story where some people kneel and then some people lap up like dogs. And I'm not sure if it's, it's trying to speak to the wisdom of how they drank, but it's talking, it uses the example that actually those that lap up like dogs, it's, it's not a complimentary thing. It's actually, the, the emphasis is on narrowing down the numbers. So I think it's basically 300 out of 10,000 men drank in such a strange way that they were the ones chosen. Some people argue that it was, oh, they, were, they were the most prepared people. I think it, it might have been that they were just the crazy people. They went down on all fours and drank like dogs. And it was those guys, those are my crazy people that I'm going to trust. But the, the emphasis is definitely on, it's actually, I want to get you to an impossible task to 300 against 135,000. Goes to 450 to 1. The odds go from 4 to 1 to 13 to 1 to 450 to 1. I started by using the example of the movie 300 a little bit, where their odds were 300 against 30,000. And that becomes the most memorable story or the most like, these odds are way worse. That story of 300 was 100 to 1. This is 450 to 1. This was God's strategy. One of the questions I ask is, how is Gideon still there? The man that is famous for his doubts, that's famous for his fear. But clearly, there was a confidence that was starting to rise in him. He had begun to actually trust God. And then God is gracious enough to him He's not even asking for another sign, but God gives him a sign. He says, go down and listen to what they're saying. And he goes down and he listens to the Midianite camp and he hears a dream that they were talking about of this loaf of barley that comes in and destroys the camp. And they say, surely this is Gideon and his army. And it fills him with so much confidence that he divides the men up 
into three separate, separate categories or three separate sections, and they go with a torch, a clay jar, and a trumpet. And they surround the army, and they break the jars, and they blow the trumpet, and they shine their light. And it causes chaos in the camp. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord said, Every man soared against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. So the 300 end up defeating the 135,000, and they end up on the run. As they start chasing them, they end up destroying 120,000 of them, and they left with 15, and they, they, they pursue them, and they end up winning the day. The challenge, though, is that in the midst of this incredible call of Gideon's life, and the doubts, and God giving him signs to overcome the doubts, and then the conflict that he faces, we come to the complexity of Gideon. Because I said, it's hard to jump into one portion of the story. We look at the heroes of the faith, and we sometimes we highlight one aspect of what they did. But the reality is they are complex characters, like any one of us. We look at Gideon, and he was an incredibly successful leader. He led one of the greatest battles, and he took them from seven years of oppression to 40 years of peace. He went from being a coward in his own life to incredibly courageous. He went from being famous for his doubt to actually a hero of the faith. Ultimately, his greatest achievement was after this victory, the people came to him and said, Gideon, we want you to be our king. And he said, no, I can't be your king. My son will not be your king. God will be your king. His greatest achievement was actually his humility to reject the leadership that was being thrust upon him by the people. But I say he's a complex character because in Judges 8, we also see Gideon begin to compromise. Unfortunately, the last instruction that we have from God to Gideon was to go down and hear the, the dream. That instruction was the last time we actually see God speaking to Gideon. The last time we see God interacting was in that battle. And I'm sure God was still in it. But the story highlights that because of that confidence and because of their external victory, Gideon begins to act out of that strength. He begins to try and humiliate the leaders of Midian. He tries to get his own son to actually murder them once they were captured. And he ends up murdering them himself. The whole story is almost highlighted to try and show how he tried to use the ways of Midian and the ways of the world to gain power. Then there's two towns, Succoth and Peniel, that don't provide them support. And he threatens them. And he uses oppression and violence to actually assert like his dominance in the situation. And you can see how he's gone from being uh, fearful and doubting to suddenly so confident in his ability that he, he starts operating in a more worldly way. And then as much as he rejects the kingship, after the people say, actually, I want you to be our king, he says, no, 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 I'm not going to be king. But I will take the gold that you have as earrings. And they end up giving him gold. And he takes that gold and he makes it into an ephod. 
And this ephod becomes a snare for his own family. And it says the whole of Israel prostituted themselves for this gold. And so we've got this juxtaposition of Gideon as a great leader and a man of faith. And then a man who compromises towards the end of his life. I said often our, our, our challenges revolve around sex, money and power. In James, he talks about it as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. And with Gideon, there's, a, there's an aspect of him relating to power where it's complicated. In one sense, he succeeds by rejecting the kingship. In another, he seems to operate as a king. He rejects the kingship, but he operates a little bit as a king. With sex, he ends up having 70 sons with multiple wives. As much as it doesn't condemn it directly, it's definitely not a pattern of life. You can see the trajectory throughout the Old Testament where it talks about like Abraham and his multiple wives and Solomon with his multiple wives. Those are not held up as pictures and examples to emulate but actually it shows the destruction of that, of being a slave to our lusts and our desires. Lastly, money we've seen, how Gideon becomes a slave and becomes a snare for him and for his family. The reality is Gideon and the complexity of his story is in the Bible for a reason. One, to show us the reliability of the Bible. It doesn't just show us these perfect characters. It doesn't hold up these perfect ideal pictures of who people are and what we are meant to be. Secondly, it's encouraging to us because if it was just these perfect characters, it would mean we are excluded. But despite their failings, what is highlighted is their successes. They are celebrated for their faith. They are celebrated for the good things that they did do. Jesus even says that God is looking for every time that you give just a cup of cold water in obedience. <coughs> Lastly, there is a warning. There's a warning in Gideon's life that our successes do not become the pathway for our compromise. Because it was exactly Gideon's success that led him to compromise. He becomes the turning point in the book of Judges. Was everything before him. There were more successful and more idealistic judges. And Gideon becomes the start of the more compromised and more flawed judges. And the whole book of Judges is a picture of showing us this cycle and this pattern of sin. The prevailing verse in the book of Judges is the final and closing verse. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we so often live like that. Where we live as if my opinion matters. My way of life matters. My truth matters more than God's opinion, more than God's truth, more than placing God as the ultimate expression of worship in my life. So in conclusion, I want us to shift like Gideon, who doubted God's faithfulness in the past, in the present, he doubted God's revelation to him. He doubted God's ability to hold on or to declare the future. And he moved into a place of actually having faith that God is good and he's faithful over the past, over the present, over our futures, over his revelation to us. Don't let your circumstances shape your understanding of God, but let the character of God 
stir hope in you for the future. Don't let your insecurities rob you of the role that God has for you. Let God's commitment to you and to be with you fill you with courage and confidence for what he's going to do in you. Don't let your success become the pathway to compromise, but remain humble, remain reliant on God, and glorify God for all of your success in your life. He is the reason for your success. And let us learn from the complicated story of Gideon's life that God's plans are not our plans. God's ways are not our ways. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one boast, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Finally, I want to connect Gideon's story to the true and greater Gideon, which is Jesus. Jesus' strategy was not to take 300 men to defeat the enemy. His strategy was to take 12 men, to train them up as disciples, and he was going to change the world. He had no home. He had no political success. He had no economic success. Isaiah even says that he had nothing physical about him to draw us to him. Nothing but the presence of God. Externally, there was nothing externally impressive of his ways. But he came with spiritual power. It was not a question of 300 versus 135,000. It wasn't 450 to 1. It was one man versus the entire world. It was one man versus Satan and all of like, the enemy's armies. One man who conquered them all. Jesus didn't reject just the inappropriate role of leadership thrust upon him by man, but he gave up the comfort of heaven. In the, he gave up being in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So my prayer today is that you would learn from the example of Gideon. Not to be influenced by your circumstances. Not to be limited by your own ability. God has a call for you. God has a call for this church. God has a call for this country. In partnership with God, we can conquer our enemies. The question is, who are our enemies? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And God will be victorious. The question is, will you be on your side? Thank you.